The scripture reading tonight is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for, me, for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who else also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Please get your Bibles out, and let's open them up to Acts chapter 19. Put a finger there. And then open them up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to, tonight we're going to begin a study of the, uh, the letter that Paul writes from Rome to Colossae, the, the letter that we know as Colossians. And uh, we're going to look at it verse by verse and really kind of delve into it over the next several Sunday nights. And uh, as we do before we ever get, we always get into God's Word, let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, we're grateful for the time that we have tonight and the way that that you bring us together in Christ in the way that you draw us closer to you and bless us, Father, and make us more certain of the hope that we have in Christ and the reward of, of being with you forever and ever at the end of time in the day of Lord, in the day of judgment. And so, Father, we ask you to help us to understand this word in such a way that it keeps us faithful and it keeps us not only faithful, Father, but it keeps us growing into the kind of people that you would have us be to represent your kingdom on this planet. And help us, Father, not only to know with our, our mind the great doctrinal uh, teachings that come out of this book, but also to be sort of fortified and galvanized in our, our, our courageous decisions to live in a way that's countercultural in our world today by learning what it is that Paul says that this is for those who are in Christ. This is how they live and this is what they look like. Help us, Father, to do all of that to your glory and to our edification and blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossae. A lot of major cities in the ancient world. Colossae was not a hugely major city. And there's really not a lot um, of reason to know much about Colossae. It was one of the cities in, in the, the, the valley of the Lycus River. Uh, there were some other cities that were a little bit greater or at least equal to Colossae, to say the least. Uh, you had Laodicea there. You had uh, Hierapolis. It was an area that in the ancient world was also known for a lot of earthquakes. But during the time of Paul, this city that had been established sometime earlier had diminished greatly in its importance. And it seems that while Paul was preaching in Ephesus, there were people in Ephesus, which was a great city there in Asia Minor, and people were coming in and out and traveling from all these different cities and doing commerce there, that there were people that heard him preach the gospel in Ephesus and then went to other places to plant a church. We read in Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, you know, something along these lines. 
uh, we read, but, but some of them, Luke writes, but some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, this is, again, perhaps how the church was planted in Colossae. We know of a couple of people who were famous from Colossae, Philemon. There's a letter that bears his name. Philemon is from uh, from Colossae. Uh, Epaphras is another. Uh, Epaphras, it seems, had heard the gospel and spread it to his hometown of Colossae. Now, going to Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles, look at verse 7. And this is part of the passage that Matt just read. Paul is writing to that church, and he's reminding them that you heard it, the gospel, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now, Epaphras, in in planting this church and, and, and working with it, it looks as if he has run into some things, things like doctrinal issues. Uh, there are some teachings that are kind of going around Colossae. They're making their way into the church that he doesn't know how to handle. And he goes all the way to Rome to find Paul and to get his advice on how do you handle these things back in my hometown. Now again, Paul is under house arrest in Rome and he writes to a church that he's never met. And he gives the letter that is known as Colossians to Onesimus and to Tychicus. And they take the letter all the way back to Colossae. And that letter begins like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Paul's doing what he does in all of his epistles. He's introducing himself and telling a little bit about uh, his call in Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And what follows in this letter is considered to be, uh, is considered by a lot of scholars that you'll read today to be one of the most enlightening texts on the, the nature of Christ and the, our understanding of the nature of Christ in this life. This, this letter takes Jesus before our very eyes and just lifts him up and expands the horizons of our knowledge about the nature and the character of Jesus as the supreme value of the universe. Now, the letter is an answer to the question that Epaphras is asking about the teachings and these philosophies that he's encountering in Colossae as he's trying to to make the, the gospel known to people, and he doesn't really have a clue as to how to refute them or how to answer them or how to debate them. And the question is this. Does it all boil down to Jesus being sufficient for everything? Is Jesus everything that we need? Is Jesus sufficient? In other words, is Jesus enough to get us to God? Or do we need more? Now, I think this is what we, you know, we need to remember this as we go through this text word by word. And it's, believe it or not, you know, here is something that is is true in just about every sphere of life that I can think of. When you bring a baby into the world, it, it's one thing to bring that baby into the world. It's, it's another thing altogether to raise that kid up to, a, to be a responsible adult and to be a, a mature human being. It, it's the same thing with a business. You can start a business. In fact, there are businesses that start all over our city. It's another thing altogether to make that business successful. It's, it's the same thing that's, that's true with the church. You, you can plant a church 
but it's another thing altogether to bring it to spiritual maturity. Uh, just a kind of a personal anecdote here. While, while Ellen and I were in Brazil with Basil and Rachel McClure as, as missionaries, uh, Basil and I found ourselves at one point with new Christians than that church had ever experienced. Between the two of us, we had baptized about 36 people that year in the capital city of the fifth largest nation in the world. And those new babes in Christ added to those who had come to faith right before that and had made up the church. And what we found ourselves with, especially with the 36 that had been added, we found ourselves with a very young church with immature Christians. I mean, you, you just can't imagine, I mean, maybe you can't imagine, some of the issues that came up in that church because of spiritual immaturity. All of a sudden, we were faced with a question. Basil and I had to decide what do we do with all of these new babes in Christ to help them to become Christ-like? Now it appears that there were people in Colossae who were not downplaying the work of Epaphras, but were basically saying, you know, Epaphras, you've made a good start, but it's not enough. If you really want to be spiritual, you need to listen to us because there's more you have to know and more that you have to do to really get to that zenith of spiritual maturity. Now, Basically, this is true of all of the heretics that you meet in church history. Heretics do not come into the church and say that you don't need Jesus. What they say is, you need Jesus and something else, rather than it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Heretics are dangerous because of this. Because it's subtle. They're not saying that Jesus is wrong or that you don't need Jesus. They just say you need Jesus and something else. They're not denying the Christian faith. They're only elevating it to another level and to a higher level. It, it's the Christian faith with all of these supplements. It's the Christian faith with, with vitamins. Now, it's also important to remember that Paul had a large degree of tolerance for differences of opinion in the church. That's why we have Romans 14 in the Bible. We looked at Romans uh, uh, last year, year before last. You'll remember that that's why we have Romans 14 in the Bible. That chapter is not about strong and weak Christians, as in mature and immature Christians. Chapter 14 is about strong Christians who, in their understanding of, of the Bible and the gospel and Christ, they can eat meat. And you have strong Christians in that church in Rome who believe that it's wrong to eat meat. Paul does not kick someone out of the church just because they disagree with him. There are going to be differences. They're not going to be salvation issues. They're not going to disdain or diminish the presence of Jesus. They're differences of, of opinion over, over sub-level, sub-important kind of, of issues. Another great example is this disagreement with Barnabas over John Mark in Acts chapter 15. What Paul will not tolerate, what he will not budge one inch on, though, is the sufficient and surpassing nature of Jesus. He can disagree with Barnabas and go his own way and still accept Barnabas as a brother, and later on even John Mark. He can have a disagreement with Barnabas over the maturity level of John Mark and taking him on a missionary journey. He can even say to the Christians in Rome, you who are strong and believe that you can eat meat, don't sacrifice the gospel over meat. Have some sensitivities with those that are also strong in the faith but believe that you shouldn't be able to eat. 
But what Paul is not going to budge one inch on is whether or not you need more than Jesus to be whole in Christ. He will strongly oppose any path to a deeper spirituality that diminishes the work of Jesus and the message of grace. That's why he writes in chapter 2, go to chapter 2, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Let me read that again. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. The word all is found over 24 times in Colossians. And, and the point is, is this. Why would you listen to someone tell you about more, that you need more, when what you have is all you need? That word all just shows up all over the place. Look at Colossians chapter 2. We'll, we'll look a little bit earlier in that chapter. Look at verses 2 and 4. He says, my purpose, circle that, his purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by sound, uh, fine-sounding arguments. What he's referring to as the fine-sounding arguments is that Christ plus something else, spirituality. So three things that we kind of want to look at tonight, uh, one kind of major thing with two sub-points underneath it that helps us to understand this Christ plus something else, spirituality. The first thing that it means, and foremost is what it means, is that it is not about Christ alone. The pervading worldview of the people becoming Christians in the ancient world that Paul was living in, and Epaphras and everyone else, was that the material world was bad. It was sinful. It was the spirit. It was soul that really mattered. And we've been talking about this some on Sunday morning. This is Plato. Another way that it was making its way into its church was in a subtle form of Gnosticism, which was a special knowledge or a special wisdom. Now, part of Gnosticism said, one, one of the places where we find Gnosticism is in the epistles 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, that are about whether or not Jesus came in the flesh. People were saying in Asia Minor, where John is writing, and where 1st and 2nd, 3rd John is found, that Jesus, if he's really God, could not come in the flesh because the flesh is bad. And, and John, or, or, yeah, John writes to the church in 2nd John that anyone who denies that Jesus uh, came in the flesh is really the antichrist so what we have here is in, in this Gnosticism that's making its way into the Lycus Valley and beginning to infect the people who are now uh, sort of uh, you know infant Christians babes in Christ is that the, it, there was this teaching that said that that beings human beings emanated away from God and the further that they got from God the more evil they became and one of these beings finally got far, far enough away from God that he was able to create this evil material universe. And that is why there is evil in the world. God had nothing to do with the creating of the heavens and the earth. Now see how that, uh, when your worldview is that there are these beings that from which human beings came from that moved away from God and the farther they got from God, the, the more they were able to create this world that has evil in it in which human beings live, 
God had nothing to do with it. God cannot be responsible for the evil that is in the world and so on and so forth. You can see when that began to infect the gospel in the church in Colossae, how it might have upset people and began to help them to, to, to well, it wasn't helping them, but it was making them feel a little uneasy and a little unsure of the faith that they had. Now, one of the things that you and I believe, we believe in the incarnation. The greatest mystery in the Bible is the incarnation. How does God become man and Jesus be both man and God at the same time and equally and fully? But what we do believe is that the Word became flesh. John chapter 1, God became flesh. Yet in this worldview, no real God could ever do that and remain godlike. And so we pick up in Colossians that there is this special knowledge that would get you from evil, past the evil things to God, and that was what you needed. Jesus is a good start, but it's not enough. You need this special knowledge this special revelation of how to get all the way to God. Jesus is a good start. He gets you a certain distance down the road, but you need the special knowledge in order to get all the way to God. Now, they would not deny Christ. They would only say that Christ was one of the emanations from God, maybe even the highest one. This is not a view that denied Christ. It just dethroned Him. Now, quite frankly, we hear the this, this same thing every day. You'll remember a few years ago, there was a book by Dan Brown uh, written that was entitled The Da Vinci Code. Uh, it was all the, 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 the read uh, about, about six, seven, eight years ago. The Da Vinci Code dealt with Jesus, and it wasn't, it wasn't being straight on antagonistic to Christ, but the subtle message was is that, is that Jesus was not who we believe he is, God in the flesh incarnate. What was happening in that book, as people were reading it, they... Jesus was not being denied. Jesus was just being dethroned. The truth, of, the truth about Jesus was that he was this marvelous teacher. He was a prophet, that he was really human, that we don't know this. It was hidden by the church as his great secret because they wanted to retain power, but that he was married and that he had a secret family. But it's really not even the Da Vinci Code. I mean, there are other instances of this in our own culture. Uh, the New Age religion that will, is, is one of the religions in our world today that says that Jesus is a way to God, but he's not the only way. Jesus is one of many ways to God. If you read what Paul writes in Colossians, you will say that that is, that is absolutely unbiblical. Paul will have nothing to do with that. He will have nothing to do with a condescended view of Jesus. He says in Colossians chapter 1, in your Bibles, look at the words, 18 and 19. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, if you were in Colossae in the first century and you were listening to one of the false teachers in Colossae, you would hear him say something along the lines of Christ is first among equals. What Paul says in Colossians 1 verses 18 and 19 is that Christ is first and there are no equals. And what Paul does in that first chapter is to paint a picture of Jesus in all his supremacy that when you think about the scope of what it is that he's saying about the Christ to human beings, it just takes your breath away. That is why Colossians was written. Notice this verse in chapter 1, verse 22. 
Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It's here that he says that there is nothing that stands between you and Christ and God. Christ's work is all surpassing. He is the supreme one. He is the head of the church when it comes to bringing humans in reconciliation to God. So how this breaks down, this idea that you need more than Christ, is that, okay, well, you need something more than Christ. So what is it? Sometimes when we read the Bible, we run into the already, you have this already in Christ, or you have this already because of the gospel, and the not yet. We have this hope of heaven. We know that one day uh, we will receive our resurrection bodies. We know that one day there's going to be a day of the Lord and the day of judgment. That's not yet. It's down the road. But there are blessings that we have already in the gospel right now. Again, we've not yet received our resurrection bodies. We have not yet come face to face with God. We have already, though, the Spirit of God inside of us. We are already, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are already being sanctified. That is, God is at work in our lives through that spirit and word and fellowship and community and worship and all of these things in helping us to be formed into the image of Jesus. What this Christ plus something else philosophy does not recognize is that already. Is that already stuff that we have in Christ. The more, they say, that you need is in addition to what you already have in Christ. And there's a lot of this in Colossians, the, the worship of angels, this, this mysticism or this special knowledge, these special acts like dietary rules and, and the Sabbath and so forth. Paul says you do not need more because in Christ you have everything. You have everything already that you need. Christ is enough. We go back to Colossians chapter 2. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your simple nature, God made you alive with Christ. You were dead, and the same sort of thing he writes to the church in Ephesus uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins. God has made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. There's that word all again having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. What about when it comes to, to spiritual victory? In chapter 2, verse 15, the very next verse, he says, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a, a, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What he says there is, I don't need more in my fight against the devil or against evil than what I have in Jesus or Jesus himself. What do I need with others when Jesus is the one that will help me to grow up? Look at verses 6 and 7 of that same chapter, Colossians 2. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, he's king, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You see, the danger is that we will grow impatient with what we have in Jesus through spiritual maturation processes, and we will begin to look for something that gives us the appearance of being more than we really are. That's the spirituality sort of on steroids that we want. What Paul is saying in Colossians is that put your confidence in Jesus. 
Surrender yourself to the Christ. Live in that Christ. Live in the one who has the fullness of deity that is living in him. That he has the supremacy in all things. That he is the head of the Christ, the first fruit of those who have been resurrected from the dead. Colossians says, put your confidence in Christ. What we need more is a right knowledge that helps us to understand more the truth of the gospel in order that we might think rightly about Christ. Now, sort of the, the back end problem of this issue of you need Christ plus something else is that it creates divisions in the church because there are people that are going to say because we have this special knowledge we have more than you inevitably there will be a fellowship divided over those who think that they have more and have arrived and have been blessed with certain knowledges over others who are just not there and Paul will hammer home that the gospel is for everybody and not just for a special few look at chapter 1 Look at verse 28 now. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Go to chapter 3. Look at verse 11. Here, because of the gospel, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but it's Christ, but Christ is all and is in all. You know, one of the really funny things that Ellen and I encountered back in uh, the, the mid-90s when we returned from Brazil is we just happened to return uh, to the United States at a time when churches of Christ were involved in these, 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 uh, these worship wars. And, and, and people were fussing over things like, like uh, w traditional hymns and, con and contemporary hymns. They were fussing and fighting over each other with, with, with the, the, the lyrics being said over and over again in a song that that wasn't mature, over opposed to the language of, of songs that were written in the 19th and 17th and, and, and uh, 16th centuries. Uh, worship uh, teams or, or, or singing groups that were down in the pews or even up on the stage. People were fighting over these things. And I remember this one conversation that I had with this woman that I considered to be a very, very mature Christian. And I just, I remember being floored with what she said. She said, well, those people, talking about people in her own fellowship, those people are just not where I am. Now you see how that Christ plus spirituality begins to divide the church. It's not that we are united because we all need Christ and Christ is all that we need. But all of a sudden there are divisions because we have special knowledge or we have special ways of understanding things like the way that we worship God with biblical words. The boast is that somehow we have figured it out and you haven't. The boast is of being more enlightened. We're just not there anymore like we used to be. And that kind of spiritual arrogance and that kind of spiritual elitism is a temptation for every group. What Paul is trying to help them to see is that there is so much more to be had in Christ and Christ alone. You just, you know, all you have to do is just pick, for this to become a reality in our own church, you just have to pick whatever that more Christ plus or Christ plus something else more you just have to figure out, figure out or pick what it is that you want and, and begin to brag about it. It's hard to be Christians only because we have trouble trusting Christ only. We split over all of the, the, the mores that we need. I don't know of a single church 
split among churches of Christ or anywhere else. I do not know of a single split that happened because they were splitting over what they believed about Jesus. It was about the Moors. We split over kitchens and fellowship halls and coat racks and coat hooks. And... But what Paul declares in the first two chapters of Colossians is that you cannot get more than what you have in Christ. And in the last two chapters, his argument will be, you need to let Christ have more of you in the way that you live. And we'll pick that up next week. Dave's going to lead us in a song right now. We're going to ask you to stand and sing that song, but we're going to have some of our spiritual leaders down here at the front. If there's a way that we can minister to you tonight, sharing the gospel with you, praying with you, counseling with you, whatever it might be, and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.